Hi, and welcome to this podcast. My name's Charlotte Westwood, and this is one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group, The Room and Room, proudly supported by PGG Rights and Seeds. In this episode, we're going to explore the second part of the basics of ruminant nutrition. In part one, that we're hoping you've already had a listen to, we discussed how feed flows from the mouth of a ruminant to the back end, where remnants of undigested feed are then re-delivered back to pasture, and how the digestive process begins. In this second episode of the two about basic ruminant nutrition, we're going to step you through how ruminant um, turns digested grass and other feeds into useful things that you're paid for, such as live weight gain in the case of young and or finishing animals, and milk in the case of lactating ewes who are producing it to grow pre-weaned lambs, or lactating dairy cows who are filling the vat with high-value milk for you. So we did a heavy sigh at the beginning of part one of this, saying ruminant nutrition, and we discussed how for many of you this is a rather boring topic, but hopefully after tuning into both of these episodes you'll feel a little bit more cheerful about understanding the basics of ruminant nutrition, particularly once we go further down the track with subsequent episodes about how manipulating ruminant nutrition can improve things such as feed conversion efficiency and productivity of your ruminant farm animals. In part one, we talked about the topic of rumen microbes and how a big reticulum and rumen is full of rumen microbes in an adult ruminant. So what does this mean for the cow or for the ewe or your lamb having all these microbes inside her? Well, what the microbes are doing is allowing her or him, depending on what animal you have, to convert relatively poorly digestible feed into breakdown products that can be used for energy, protein, uh, and other things that that animal needs to not only just survive, but to also gain weight and do the things that you want your ruminants to do. So these microbes, what are they? Well, that's a combination of largely bacteria, but also there's all sorts of things in there. There's protozoa, a uh, very important part of, of part of a digestive process. We've got fungi and we've even got the odd virus tripping around in there, hopefully uh, not COVID. And these microbes live very happily inside the rumen or the reticular rumen, stomach number one and number two, of your rumen and an animal. Now, it's actually really clever how Mother Nature has designed ruminants to coexist happily alongside those two or three trillion or so microbes inside the rumen. And this relationship is called a symbiotic relationship. And if we look at that simply, it means that the ruminant, the animal, and the microbes have, over a very long period of time, sort of uh, tens of thousands or, or further of years, these animals and microbes have learned to successfully coexist for the greater good for both of them. So that's the, that's the ruminant animal and the, um, the rumen microbes. It's quite clever when you think about it. So what's in it for the microbes? Why do they want to happily coexist with the cow? And why would they want to live inside an animal? Well, these microbes have got it pretty good, really, because they have some basic needs to support their well-being on a day-to-day -day basis. So the rumen microbes need three key things. First of all, just like us, they need to be warm and cosy. So they need to be kept nice and warm so that they can ferment and grow well. 
Secondly, the microbes need an ongoing plentiful supply of food. And thirdly, because the microbes, when they're growing and reproducing, they will produce a lot of waste products. And so they don't sort of drown in their own waste. They need that to be removed on an ongoing basis. And these waste products include metabolites of feed digestion, such as volatile fatty acids. If, for example, the waste byproducts, as volatile fatty acids, aren't removed from where the microbes are happily living, those acids would eventually make it so acidic and so nasty a place to be that those microbes would die. So this is where the cow steps in to help the microbes. Firstly, the cow keeps things um, ample feed coming in continuously for those microbes. Every time uh, the cow or the sheep uh, or your beautiful stag consumes feed, in this case let's say ryegrass or ryegrass clover pasture, the animal is chewing and swallowing the feed down. And we explained how this all works in part one of this um, uh, episode that was before this one. And that feed arrives in the rumen and is presented to the microbes. So these microbes get food delivered without even having to go anywhere. It's kind of like an Uber for, um, you know, bringing feed in for those microbes. Doesn't They don't have to go out looking for it. It just comes straight to them. And really ruminants are just the mouth and uh, the four legs walks of fermentation that around. That's all these ruminants are, is just continuously feeding their microbes that are in, on board inside their rumen. Secondly, the ruminant animal is providing lovely body warmth to keep those microbes happy and cosy inside the rumen. And it's a really warm place, in fact, in there, because inside a rumen, on average, the temperature is one and a half to two degrees warmer than uh, a ruminant's own body temperature. So let's say cattle, for example, and their normal temperature is 38 degrees Celsius. It's going to get toasty in there up to 39 or even 40 degrees Celsius in there. And with sheep, their normal temperature is 39 degrees. And again, that means it's just a cosy place for microbes inside a sheep's rumen of getting uh, even up to 40 or 40.5 degrees Celsius. And so that keeps the microbes happy. Now, bizarrely, the microbes uh, who like the warmth can actually pay it back, if you'd like, to an animal who's outside in the cold. During the fermentation, particularly of high fibre feeds, you actually get what's called the heat of fermentation that occurs. So you think any fermentation that's happening, maybe you, you cut the lawn last weekend and you, you collected all the grass clippings and now they're in a pile in the corner of uh, your garden, go and put your hand in there or just watch it steam on a cold morning. The fermentation that's happening in there is producing warmth. Same in a silage stack that's not well stacked. You'll get a steam off that as well, uh, off the face if it's still fermenting and you're feeding it straight back out. So the heat of fermentation inside the rumen is actually useful when we're developing strategies for keeping ruminants warm during really yuck cold weather. And that heat of fermentation, uh, particularly if we, as we said, the poorer quality feeds, so this might be a cereal or ryegrass straw or hay, when the weather is cold outside, that's the justification, particularly when you've got wind chill and perhaps a storm coming through, to offer ruminants some additional uh, 
high fibre feeds, particularly if they're on good quality feeds like winter brassica crops or fodder beet. And the heat of fermentation inside the room and actually repays that cow a favour. She's kept the microbes warm the rest of the time and now a high fibre feed means that the fermenting feed inside the rumen actually keeps the animal warm when that weather is a bit cold and miserable. A little bit like a little two-bar heater cooking away inside the cow. So the warmth factor, everyone's happy. The heat of fermentation keeps the animal warm in cold weather. And the rest of the time, uh, the animal's body temperature keeps the microbes warm. So it's nice and toasty and keeps an effective rumen happening. So we've said firstly, uh, the benefits of the symbiotic relationship is that the animal is dropping feed continuously into the microbes. That's great. Tick the box there. Secondly, the warmth factor. Everyone's happy. Tick the box there. And then the third reason that the animal is helping keep the rumen microbes healthy is that the, uh, the animal is helping the microbes by removing those waste products of fermentation from the rumen. We said before about volatile fatty acids, if we get too many of them accumulating, the pH falls in the rumen from the normal 6.2 to 6.8 and can become too acidic for a happy normal rumen microbes to remain. So we've already mentioned in part one of this basic ruminant nutrition podcast about what happens with saliva being added to the feed when the animal consumes feed initially or when the animal chews cud. So go back to episode one if you haven't heard about that. But saliva essentially adds buffers into the saliva that's swallowed with the feed and this helps buffer the acidity of the rumen contents that's occurring during to accumulation uh, of volatile fatty acids uh, being produced by the microbes' metabolism. So, yep, the buffers work to a certain point, but more importantly, the ruminant animal is removing VFAs or volatile fatty acids from the rumen by, number one, absorbing VFAs, volatile fatty acids, across the rumen wall into the bloodstream of the cow. So there's a net outflow of VFAs leaving the rumen into the blood of the cow, and more about this shortly. As well as that, VFAs will also leave the rumen and go down to stomachs number three, the omasum, where VFAs are absorbed, and also further down the gut, including into the cecum, uh, uh, that's another place where VFAs can be absorbed and produced in their own right, if you go back to episode number one. So the cow is providing for the microbes a continuous fermentation culture, if you'd like. Feed is going in one end, the secondary byproducts are coming out the back end and being available to the animal for supporting things such as VFA metabolism and also proteins, stuff that we're going to talk about shortly, and it's nice and warm in there. So look, um, essentially... These VFAs, we've glanced over them and volatile fatty acids. I'm sorry if we've glanced over them, but now we're really going to drill down into it because Mother Nature, again, cleverly, has found a use for the animal for those VFAs that have been produced by microbes as a byproduct from their fermentation of feed to provide the microbes with an energy source. So what does the animal do with these VFA byproducts? It's not like they're just going to excrete them or pee them out the back end or anything like that. No, in actual fact, these animals have evolved over tens of thousands or however long that ruminants have been around 
to use these VFA byproducts from the microbe fermentation for their own purposes. And predominantly the VFAs are used as an energy source. And once you've, the reason to, to hang in here and listen to me about the, the VFAs and, and chatting away about this is that as you get further into your knowledge of ruminant nutrition, we need to understand the amounts of VFAs that are produced and really importantly, the types of VFAs, of which there's quite a few, because different feeds support fermentations that produce different proportions of different VFAs. And we can get cunning and use this to our advantage when we're discussing feeding different stuff to animals and opportunities to do things such as improved feed conversion efficiency. So to scene set, it's, it's useful to know this stuff, uh, even if you go, but oh, this is getting a bit boring. There's, there's a method to the madness here. Stick with us. So of the VFAs, and there's quite a few, there's three main ones from a quantitative point of view that drive animal productivity. And so we're just going to talk about three, but any nutrition purists, yes, will acknowledge there's a few others. But these are the main ones that we talk about. Now, number one is the VFA called acetate or acetic acid. Usually we call it acetate. And this accounts for about, depending on the diet, between 60 to 70% of the total VFAs produced by the microbes as they're fermenting the feeds. Now, acetate is used predominantly by the ruminant as an energy source, but depending on where it goes, into the liver or elsewhere, it's also used by an animal to, to as a building block, if you'd like, to make useful things such as lipids or fat. So if it's a dairy cow that's lactating, a lot of, about 50% of the fat has been manufactured in the udder called de novo synthesis using acetate as a building block to make your milk fat. But yeah, it's predominantly as an energy source that the acetate contributes to energy that allows your ruminant animal to, to walk around, to breathe its heart to beat um, as a maintenance requirement. So that's the first one, acetate. The second most prevalent VFA is one called propionate. Now again, depending on the diet that the animal is eating, the VFA makes up anywhere from, oh, pick a number, 18 up to even up to 30% of the total VFAs, depending on the type of diet that your, your animal is actually eating. And no matter what we do to the diet, there'll always be more acetate than propionate, but the ratios of acetate to propionate will shift around. So what is it about propionate that usually gets ruminant nutritionists and you also, from a feed conversion efficiency point of view, quite excitable? Well, firstly, we like this VFA, and the reason we like propionate as our favourite VFA is that it's an especially good one for the, the grazing animal, the ruminant, because propionate leaves the rumen, so it's there, it accumulates in the rumen, leaves the rumen, crosses the rumen wall, ends up in the blood supply that channels directly through to the liver. And you go, oh, so what about propionate arriving in the liver? Who cares? Well, I'll tell you what is really cool is that the propionate in the liver is, a, is converted really efficiently into blood glucose. So this is an energetically much more conver efficient conversion of a VFA into glucose than if we're using, say, acetate as an energy source. So propionate's really good for a very busy ruminant at keeping blood glucose levels elevated. 
so we like propionate, particularly for something such as a lactating dairy cow, for example. Glucose is used really efficiently as an energy source, including being converted into the milk sugar lactose. And lactose, it's present at about 5% um, of, you know, of milk volume. And it's really important because that dictates the volume of milk produced by your ruminant. So it's important that lactose is manufactured from glucose and the best way to get blood glucose in there is to have propionate coming from the rumen. And the third most important, well quantitatively most important VFA that comes from the rumen and that accounts for maybe 12 to 15 or even 18% of total VFA uh, production in the rumen is called butyrate. So like acetate and propionate, butyrate is also used as an energy source by the grazing ruminant. Butyrate is used somewhat less effectively as an energy source compared to the more efficiently used VFA propionate, but it's still a very useful uh, volatile fatty acid or VFA. And like acetate, can be used as a building block to produce fat. So summing up, there's three VFAs. There's the main one, the quantitatively most uh, quantitatively present one, if you'd like, that's acetate. Then we have propionate, which is our favourite one because it's converted very efficiently into glucose and energy. And butyrate, which is the third uh, quantitatively important VFA in the rumen. So why are we going on and talking about the production of VFAs by the rumen microbes? And how does the cow use VFAs as a source of energy? Well, I'll tell you the reason we're going on and on about VFAs is that this is the central process and the real guts, if you pardon the pun, by which ruminants are able to take high fibre, low quality feeds and actually use them for something useful, in, in this case energy. So now that you've got a uh, hopefully a really good understanding of VFA production from the, the carbohydrate parts of the diet. So that's fibre, or NDF, neutral detergent fibre. More about that in another episode. And the sugars and or starches in your feed. You're starting to get the beginning of a really good understanding about ruminant nutrition. So when we start talking about different feeds or managing your pastures uh, in a different way, different round lengths or getting more legumes into the diet or less seed head by good management or whatever, hopefully you're going to begin to understand that if we tweak the diet, even if it's as simple as change grazing management, uh, such that we end up with particularly high quality pasture and perhaps instead of very poor quality pasture or if we add something to the diet like cereal grains, so that's your wheat or barley or kibble maize, we can end up with different ratios of those volatile fatty acids. So that's particularly changing the ratio of acetate to propionate. It's a bit harder to shift butyrate levels around, but they can go up. Uh, higher levels of butyrate if you feed a high sugar diet. So that's a lot of feed grade molasses or perhaps fodder beet bulbs. The aim of ruminant nutrition where we can, depending on what system that you are running at your place, is to try to end up with more propionate relative to acetate. So remember propionate is used more efficiently than acetate as an energy source being converted directly through to blood glucose. And more propionate means a better feed conversion efficiency. So that means more energy extracted from every kilo of feed eaten uh, than feeds that are eaten support more acetate and less propionate. 
So things that improve propionate yields include much better grass quality and much better pasture quality, either through grazing management or getting more legumes in there. It might be from feeding a forage brassica, more uh, propionate relative to acetate. And additional things such as feeding cereal grains uh, and even indeed feeding feed additives such as ionophores, such as monensin or lasalicid, that again can slightly increase the amount of propionate relative to acetate. So we'll talk more about that and I'm sure each and every one of you would have examples of, based on your simple gut feel, pardoning the pun, about good quality feeds supporting improved animal life weight gain or milk production. And it's to do with more propionate relative to acetate or in some cases because animals are eating more of high quality feed, the total level of all volatile fatty acids increase and therefore are providing more energy precursors to drive that animal further and harder with regard to more energy, more life weight gain, more milk, or whatever your outcome of interest is. The other thing too, increasingly of a topic that we're needing to encounter is greenhouse gas emission. And as we all know, is that the agricultural industry is tasked with trying to reduce the production of methane. Now, I think we'll do this as a topic, uh, a room and room topic, another day around greenhouse gas emission. But increasing the proportion of propionate relative to acetate is not only favourable, like a good thing, uh, for improved feed conversion efficiency and animal productivity, but when we have more propionate, we actually can slightly reduce methane emissions. So the justification for that is that the propionate is called or is termed a hydrogen sink. So it's not a, well, it is a sink full of hydrogen, perhaps not the kitchen sink. But what propionate is doing is absorbing or taking out from the rumen excessive hydrogen ions that are otherwise taken up by uh, the types of microbes grouped as methanogens and methanogens are the ones that produce methane and to produce methane those methanogens need lots of hydrogen slopping around in the rumen and if that hydrogen is being re-diverted to propionate there's less hydrogen available for methane production more about that another day but um, and at the moment we're not being rewarded on farm for changing diets to produce more propionate and therefore less methane but watch this space, hopefully that may change in the future. Right, that's VFAs. Hopefully you've got your head around that, and if you have, we'll come back to the other really important aspect of ruminant nutrition, and that's the protein side of the story. So to recap, we've done carbohydrates, fibre, sugar, starch, and the conversion into VFAs. What's happening to protein inside the feeds that have been consumed by your animal? Well, the protein arrives into the rumen, as we explained in the last episode. And depending on the quality of the feed and what's happening inside the rumen, the protein, especially from high quality pastures, is almost exclusively broken down into the what we call the building blocks uh, of protein, which is predominantly peptides, which are lots of amino acids joined together, or free amino acids, or where there's non-protein nitrogen in that particular feed, the nitrogen is converted into ammonia. Now these 
building blocks of protein, the amino acids and peptides and ammonia, are, if things are going well in the rumen, and there's lots of energy coming from uh, from the digestion of carbohydrates, so the, the microbes are feeling very energised and very full of themselves, they will have the energy to recombine ammonia and amino acids back into microbial protein. So microbial protein is the best, highest quality type of protein we can ever hope to have. In fact, the amino acid profile of microbial protein is very similar to that of milk protein in the case of dairy nutrition. So if we can set up a fermentation in the rumen that, hey, in the first instance gives us relatively more propionate, but also encourages the best yields of microbial protein, we're on to a winner with regard to feeding our animals well. Now the microbial protein uh, leaves the rumen because the protein is actually part of the microbes themselves. And if they can't hang on to fibre, they will flow out of the rumen, down into the omasum, the abomasum, and reach the levels of the small intestine, where that protein, the digestion starts in the abomasum with proteases, such are enzymes released to digest the protein, will arrive at the level of the small intestine, uh, and those amino acids are taken across the wall of the small intestine and made available for a whole range of things. Could be growth in case of a young lamb laying down muscle, could be milk protein in the case of a lactating uh, ruminant, and in some cases where animals aren't getting enough energy, the amino acids can actually be broken down as an energy source. It's another story, another day. But anyway, these amino acids that leave uh, the small intestine into the bloodstream are incredibly valuable for ruminant nutrition. Now that's based on the journey which is breaking down dietary protein in the rumen to ammonia amino acids recombined to microbial protein and then that protein arrives at the small intestines from the rumen. Now not all protein of your dietary protein is broken down. A proportion depending on the type of feed protein it is, actually sneaks around that process and leaves the rumen and arrives through the omasum and abomasum at the intestines without ever being broken down in the rumen. And that proportion uh, is uh, called undegraded dietary protein, undigested dietary protein, UDP, uh, or simple terms bypass protein. So it's bypassing being uh, trashed and broken down by the microbes and it's sneaking straight through so whatever you wish to call it it's called a whole lot of different terms bypass protein whatever it's the stuff that doesn't get broken down now for um, let's say very high quality grass you could have as much as 90% of total uh, high quality protein and pasture being broken down and perhaps 10% or even less being the bypass protein or undergraded dietary protein on the other hand, if you've got a protein meal, um, soybean meal for example, so soybeans are squashed and during the squashing process to extract oil, uh, you end up with some heat produced and that improves the proportion of protein that escapes degradation in the rumen. That might be up to 35% undig undegraded dietary protein or bypass protein and only 65% rumen degradable protein. So all feeds are created differently and that'll be another topic another day as part of the room and room podcast series so we've got two types of protein leaving the rumen we have microbial protein and we have 
uh, undergraded dietary protein or bypass protein. So the combination of both microbial protein and that bypass or undergraded dietary protein arriving at the intestines is called loosely metabolizable protein, or in other words, the protein that can potentially be used by the animal for useful things, such as laying down muscle protein or perhaps ending up as, as milk protein in the milk of lactating ruminants. So that protein, um, not all of which, just because it's made it to the level of the intestines, doesn't always mean it's going to get taken up by the small intestines. And there is a tiny proportion of the protein that arrives at the intestines that carries on through. It doesn't get taken up by the small intestine. It ends up back outside on the dung. So, so that's the journey of protein. And already, hopefully, a lot of you are starting to think, ah, so what happens if the ammonia doesn't get taken up uh, and converted into microbial protein? Ah, you're one, one step ahead. And very good quality pasture, particularly in the autumn and the spring, the rumen bugs do get offered just overwhelmingly too much uh, of the rumen degradable protein, the stuff that's broken down, and we can get a surplus of rumen ammonia. And the surplus of rumen ammonia has nowhere to go. The microbes are already running at full capacity. And that ammonia, depending on rumen conditions, is potentially going to cross the rumen wall and end up as blood ammonia and go for a ticky tour around the body of the ruminant. Now, the tissues of the, uh, the ruminant, the body tissues, so that's the brain, um, other parts of the animal, the muscles, uh, all parts of the animal, don't like a lot of blood ammonia floating around because it can be directly toxic to tissues of the animal. So this is where the liver steps in. Uh, one of the many things that the liver does and it goes, uh -huh, leave that with me, I'm going to get rid of that ammonia for you. And the liver takes or removes ammonia from the circulation of your ruminant animal and converts it, joins it up with another source of nitrogen. So you have two nitrogens in the urea molecule and converts that surplus ammonia into urea. The urea then is kicked out of the liver, re-enters the blood and uh, is taken to the kidney and is excreted as urinary urea that many of you will be familiar with, particularly in the dairy industry, because this is uh, the concerning source of urinary urea that can then be lost as in loss um, into the soil uh, and into water sources, etc., so the ammonia process is usually to do with too much total amount of protein as crude protein and too much as a proportion of total protein that is present as rumen degradable protein and being converted into ammonia. So that's some aspects around dietary nutrition. If your milk urea in the case of a dairy situation is extremely high, we know there's too much ammonia. There's too much urea being tipped out by the liver into the blood and the urea molecule is very small and easily crosses uh, the milk blood barrier into the udder and ends up as milk urea. Another topic, another day. So essentially that's what protein is all about and ruminant nutrition is about encouraging the animal to convert as much of the breakdown products of dietary protein in the rumen back into microbial protein because it's such good quality protein with regard to the amino acid profile of it that will support amazing growth in young animals and good levels of uh, milk protein in the case of lactating ruminants 
and that's another topic another day about how we get good yields of microbial protein. So that's been part two of the basics of ruminant nutrition. Clearly there's a lot of other stuff that we haven't touched on yet and we will around importance of fibre in the diet, around mineral, uh, trace mineral and macro mineral nutrition. There's a lot of topics here but for these two episodes hopefully it's been a helpful journey of just how feed Firstly, in the last episode, number one, or the previous episode, talked about the journey through the gut and part of the digestive process. And in this second part, we've covered the importance of volatile fatty acids, or VFAs, from dietary carbohydrates and how the animals learnt to turn that into energy. And in the case of protein, how protein is broken down and the importance of having a feed that provides ample, good quality microbial protein to be digested at the level of the intestines. So yeah, it's been a, a tough couple of episodes for you, no doubt. It's quite a dry topic. Hopefully you're not totally put off ruminant nutrition because the fun stuff will most certainly uh, kick off in the subsequent episodes. But look, I think in summing up, really we've got to acknowledge that Mother Nature's a pretty clever um, uh, set up between the design of ruminants that, that provide for the animal and also the microbes inside the animals. And look, we really hope you've enjoyed this journey through the gut of a ruminant. And please do join us again very soon here at the Rumin Room uh, with future podcasts uh, delivered by myself, Charlotte Westwood, uh, on behalf of PGG Rights and Seeds. Enjoy your day. Cheers. Cheers.